Good morning again. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, first chapter. This is where we will be for some time. We're going to be going through the book of John together. John uh, stands out amongst the four Gospels as being the one that was written to a largely non-Christian audience. And so as we read it, we will see that kind of bent toward the story of Jesus and his life and his ministry. So as we come to this book, let us keep that in mind. John wrote this to a largely non-Christian audience. And as particularly as we come to this first prologue, as John is setting forth who the book is about, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So before we go to the text, let's go to him in prayer and ask for his help. Father, we come to you this morning, we come to your word, and we are in dire need of your assistance with it, um, not only because of our inability to comprehend uh, heavenly things and powerful things, but also our ability to twist your words so that they would say what we would want them to say in such a way as to glorify ourselves. Because we are guilty of both a lack of understanding and a desire to twist your scriptures, Father, we pray that you would help us convict us of our sin, open our hearts and open our minds so that we might see what you would have us to hear, what you would have your people to know and to learn. Convict us and show us the sin in our hearts that would manipulate your word. And lead us to the truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the spring of 2007, which is closely approaching 10 years, it's crazy, I ran my first triathlon. I got a wild hair one day. And I called my friend Brian, who at the time lived in Memphis, and now he's planning a church in Austin, Texas. And I called him, I said, let's do a race together. And he said, all right, let's do it. So we did it. We decided to do that. And we, uh, the race was in Columbia, Missouri. It's a beautiful uh, city. University of Missouri is there. It's a beautiful campus. And after weeks of prep and learning how to swim the right way and learning how to ride a bike the right way and run and all these things, we made the trek up the road to Columbia, Missouri with our wives, and I'll never forget that day on race day. We walked our bikes up, but we, we had a hotel near the race course, so we just literally walked our bikes up to the racetrack, and we parked them, and I had this overwhelming sense of anxiety that came over me. All of my confidence started to just go away as I looked around and I saw all these very fit people. I saw these athletes with their very expensive bikes, and here I am pushing my Walmart bike up the road. And we entered this building, and I saw this pool, and it was the biggest pool I'd ever seen in my life. You know, I grew up in the Boot Hill of Missouri. There's not very many pools in the Boot Hill, much less Olympic-sized pools. And there was this Olympic-sized pool, and I'd never seen anything quite like it. And there were nearly 500 people circling this pool, around the pool, waiting for instructions. And I remember thinking, well, I'll just sit next to Brian. He's, uh, he's easy to 
he like fits into crowds really well, whereas I don't at all. And I'll just sit next to him, then I'll feel good. Well, then they announced where we would be seating or sitting in the bleachers around the pool, and we were going to have staggered swim times, whereas all the fast swimmers got to go first, and all the slow swimmers, like myself, got to go last. And so Brian, of course, was a very fast swimmer, and he got to go up to the front. So there I was, left all alone, sitting there. And I remember just hoping that someone that I knew would pop up and like make me feel better. Because I'm a pretty shy person. I get overwhelmed in social gatherings. I just needed someone to be there near me. Emily wasn't going to be there. Brian's wife, Erica, wasn't going to be there until later. And so I knew I couldn't depend on that. I had to, the whistle was, so when the whistle started, every five minutes, people were jumping into the pool and swimming up and down this long pool. And so my nerves were beginning to set in. And I was like, I'm just going to jump in and sink to the bottom at this point. Because everything that I've learned is just going out the window and I'm scared to death now. So I just sat there alone and I waited for what seemed to be my impending failure and my impending doom. It must have been very similar for the Jewish people in between the time of the Old and New Testaments. We have spent some time together going through the Old Testament and the New, and the New Testament concerning the covenants of God. And there was this period of 400 years between the Old and New Testaments where there were no prophets, no word from the Lord. Israel was under control of by someone the whole time, by Persia or Greece or finally Rome in the New Testament. And the people of Israel who, who had begun with this very rich and vibrant relationship with God, who had, who had been with him in the wilderness, if you remember, and dwelt with him and he, as he traveled with them in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, and they built the tabernacle there in the wilderness, and God was in the midst of his people. Scripture even says that Moses spoke with God as a man speaks to his friend face to face. And all of that had gone away. Israel's years of, as the Bible puts it, prostitution to other nations, even through all of that, God was going to stick with them the entire time. And why is that? Because he made a promise to them. He loved his people. He loved his bride. But yet there was nothing for 400 years. That is, until Jesus came. So the technical term for Jesus coming onto earth is called the incarnation. And it literally means to be made flesh. It comes from this Latin word called incarno, and though that word isn't in Scripture uh, directly, we, it's drawn specifically from this text here in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Particularly in verse 14 is where we'll spend a lot of our focus. This is the text when it comes to the incarnation of Christ. John was writing to a non-Jewish, non-Christian, largely non-Christian audience, and this audience that he was writing to was wading through many, many ideas about deity. Many ideas about the flesh, even, and how these two things could possibly be intertwined. I mean, if you think about the entire Greek pantheon, and the, subsequently the Roman pantheon, which they worshipped, and the stories therein, it's just a bunch of gods who wanted to be people, and a bunch of people who wanted to be gods. 
It's kind of a mixed up thing. It sounds pretty ridiculous to our ears even. But I think that we're going to see that many of our own struggles mirror those of the ancient Greeks when it comes to grasping something so complex yet something so incredibly simple as the incarnation of Christ. So we're going to look at why the incarnation was necessary and how our own ministry should model it in manifesting the love and truth of Jesus Christ here in Murray, Murray State, to Callaway County, Western Kentucky, and to the whole world. So as that, let's go to the text this morning. Let's stand together as we read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will, or of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This, is, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. I love to read this passage in the Greek language. Not all passages flow very nicely in the Greek language, but this particular passage has this real nice rhythm and flow to it, so much so that even secular scholars will say, this is a beautiful piece of Greek. And it just sounds really nice. And one of the immediate things that comes out in this passage, particularly in the first five verses, is this concept of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Greek word here is the word logos. You've probably heard that before. And this is particularly significant because in the Greek language, this concept of logos was a creative force. It was a force of order and a force of reason. It's where we get our word logic from, so it makes sense. In the Greek thought, the, the logos was kind of the go-between between what they thought to be the perfect immaterial God 
and the imperfect material man. So John, seeing this hint of truth here in secular thought, grabbed a hold of this concept. And that isn't to say that John somehow adopted Greek philosophy or anything like that and was trying to mix it with Christianity. I think that would be quite to the contrary, actually. John was showing those who would read this that what they were reading had this ring of truth to it. And that they and that he was now going to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel to them. I mean, it's very similar to what Paul does in Acts 17 at the Areopagus. As he approached this idol titled to an unknown God, what did Paul do with it? He said he used this opportunity to, to show the Greeks the God that you call the unknown God is the God who created all things is the God of the Bible, and his son is Jesus Christ, your Lord. It, he didn't change the truth at all by doing that. You know, it's, it's presumptuous to think that we could change the truth somehow by something that we say. But he took the truth of Jesus Christ, and he made it accessible to his readers. And he goes on to outline that the Word was with God, the Word was God. It doesn't tell us that the Word was a God or that the Word was like God. We read that this Word was God, was from the beginning with God, and through it all things were created. This should immediately bring, bring us back to where? The very beginning of Scripture. These opening verses mirror the opening verses of Genesis, and that's on purpose. As we read the God of the universe creating all things, light going out into the darkness. And what's so incredible about this opening passage in John's Gospel is that it doesn't stop there. We aren't left wondering, who is this God? How can we know him? How can we know this creator God? He isn't left unreachable like many of the Greek ideas of the day, high and lofty, unable to be touched. But he is very near. Because as we keep reading, we build up to this crescendo, as it were. We read that the true light, or the true light, was coming to the world. The true light of life was coming to the world. He has given us the right to become children of God. And then we get to verse 14. And this should be a verse that's imprinted on the hearts and minds of every believer everywhere. When we read this verse, I mean, con consider coming from the Greek point of view, the Greek pantheon, where the gods were so lofty and so transcendent, and their, and their words were so um, seemingly meaningless to the people because they were so high and lifted up, and there was no one could reach them. Verse 14 should make us want to just jump out of our seats with joy and excitement, because the word creator of all things, the God of the universe, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The creator of all things, what did he do? He became like me. He didn't ask me to change, because he knew I couldn't even if I wanted to, which I would never even want to on my own anyway. 
He changed. He took on a body so that I can be made new. Let's pair this with a passage from Isaiah. In this passage, this is a passage that we normally read at Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9, if you want to turn there. But this isn't just a Christmas passage. It says this about our Lord Jesus, Isaiah chapter 9. It says, The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When the people would read this, hopefully they would immediately think, wow, what John is talking about is what Isaiah was talking about all those years ago. This Jesus, this Word made flesh, is the one who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This was the one who would bring light into the world and light to a people who had long walked in bondage and oppression. This was the great promise that Israel had stood upon all of those years. And it was now coming to pass in Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. John tells us that this Word, the Creator of all things, in whom all things exist, the one who all things, through all things, holds together, became flesh. This Word, of course, is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this isn't to say that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity, simply came to earth and appeared to the human. He became human. It also doesn't mean that for a time He ceased to be God. He is the eternal Son of God. He's always the Son of God. He's always God. And he took on humanity. And he didn't at this point become half human, half God, but was fully God, fully man. This idea is very simple to state, but hopefully we can never fully expect to wrap our minds around it. I, I taught, taught this concept a lot, and I was in youth ministry for a lot of years. And this, this theological concept is called the hypostatic union. And I would teach this to youth, and I would tell them, I need you to think about this concept that God became, he was fully God and became fully man. He was both fully God, fully man. And I want you to think about it. And if you don't have any questions, you haven't thought about it long enough. Because this is a simple truth to state, but it's the single greatest thing that happened in human history. Why? Because all of those types, all of those shadows that we read about in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the cloud, the fire, the water that sprang forth from the rock there in Exodus 17, the sacrifices, the priests, all of those things in the Old Testament 
are now being shown forth in Jesus Christ. The message of the Old Testament shouts loudly. The Redeemer that the Old Testament saints dreamed about, that they looked forward to, he is finally here. What did the angel tell Joseph? He will be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This salvation that the world had looked forward to and they were desperate for is finally here. And this Savior that would come is finally here. And guess what? He comes and he was born and he was placed in a cattle stall. And he was wrapped in plain clothes and put in a feeding trough. God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, has finally come to save us. And he is a baby. He's a human being. He bleeds. He gets sad. He gets hungry. And he can die. Why is this idea such a stumbling block to us? In John's time, people couldn't possibly believe that the perfect, immaterial God could mix with the imperfect, material things. There was this prevailing thought that the material world was actually just a mistake of the gods, and that we, as this imperfect material, should set and should strive ourselves to set, us, to set ourselves free of this material body, to become spiritual again, and that Christ was simply just a spiritual being on earth. Well, Christ, coming to earth as flesh, shatters this belief all to pieces. Why is it that we struggle with it? We struggle with it because we ourselves are broken. We're messed up people. We know our sin and our shame and our fears, and we can't fathom why God would come down and face them with us and for us. We read the Gospels, and I think sometimes we like the picture of this Jesus that kind of floated around and wore white robes, and he was clean all the time and had nice, clean hands. This isn't the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible was very physical. He got tired. He got hungry and thirsty, and he bled on the cross, and he died. Not only did he become flesh, but he actually dwelt among us. He lived among his people. John, in, in his writing, is borrowing from the imagery of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The Jewish people wondered, and they took the tabernacle with them, representing God's presence among his people. Now God was here, physically, among his people, that he became flesh. Literally, he tabernacled among them. He ate with them. He went to their wedding parties. He attended temple services with them. He was, his, he was their friend. Not only this, he faced the temptations and the trials that they would. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we have one who has been tempted in everything, yet was without sin. He walked the perilous life on this earth that we walked, that the people then walked, and yet he was without sin. He followed his father's laws perfectly. Why would an almighty God come and dwell among his people? Why would an almighty God follow the Father's law perfectly? Because we couldn't do it. 
because he made a promise. That he would always be our God and that we would always be his people. And in order to make this happen, he had to become man and follow the laws that we couldn't follow and die the death that we deserve, suffering our punishment on the cross. There was no other way. God simply couldn't have created another Adam, another perfect man. Man alone could not possibly bear the weight of the divine wrath that was due him. It had to be a God-man. Man alone could not possibly redeem himself from the estate of sin and the estate of misery. It had to be the God-man Jesus Christ. Christ alone was the one for the task, and he did just that. The incarnation is simple to state, but God came, became flesh and dwelt among us. But as simple as it is to think about it and talk about it, we will forever, to the glory of God, be examining its complexities in heaven. So that's the incarnation. But what does it mean for us here at Redeemer Community? First and foremost, it means that we have salvation. Hallelujah for that. We can know God because of Jesus Christ. So what do we do about it now that we know Him? What about this mission that He has given us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? What does the incarnation have to do with that? If God became flesh and dwelt among us, how can we, his people, model that in this community? I think perhaps it's best for us to define what it is by looking first at kind of what it isn't. Because as Christians, we sometimes want to get into this mentality of we're safe. And that's all that counts at the end of the day. Now, I think at best, sometimes we see the lost world as a project to us. And at worst, we see them through locked gates and doors. Alistair Begg, who many of you guys are familiar with, a sermon that I heard from him recently, uh, called it Rabbit Hole Christianity. And he said that we're just like rabbits, moving from one hole to the next, peeking out carefully, looking out the hole, making sure nothing's there, and we get into our church hole on Sunday, our various other Christian holes during the week because we're rabbits and it's a dangerous world out there. And we need to stay hidden and we need to stick close. And we'd like to think that we'd like to thank the Lord that we're not like that guy over there and that guy over there, forgetting that the only difference between us and them is Jesus Christ, not us. We forget that without him, we're only beggars. And it's only because of him that we can say that we're forgiven. We have nothing without him, and ultimately we only have him to give other people. So how then should we be modeling the incarnation? First, I think we model the incarnation by showing the light of Christ. We see this a bit here in this passage with John the Baptist. John here is, is not, John the Baptist is obviously not the writer of this book, but this person, John the Baptist, was a person who was to come to 
prepare the way for Christ. The text says that he was to bear witness about the light. Verse 9 says, the true light that enlightens everyone was coming to the world. This is the light that John the Baptist witnessed to. This is the light that we should be witnessing to. We have been called, just like John the Baptist and all believers, to be witnessing to this light. It's this light, the light of Christ, that pierces the darkness of the people that we know. This darkness that engulfs engulfs their life. And we know people that live in darkness. Anytime our response, I think, sometimes is to just throw our morality at them. Somehow saying, well, you see, if you your life is so messed up because you do all these bad things. And if you could just straighten your life up and do good things, then, then your life would be better. And I think, to a large part, that's true. A lot of times people are messed up. Their people's lives are crazy because of their sin. And that, I, I admit that. But for someone who's lost without Jesus Christ, what do they need? They don't need anyone to tell them that their life is mixed up and that they're doing bad things. I think they know that. Unfortunately, many times that's what we do. But for people who are living in darkness, what do they need to figure out? They don't need, they don't need to figure out how to live in the darkness better. They need the light. And the light is Jesus Christ. And it's our responsibility to show them the light of Christ. And just like any light, you don't have to convince someone that there's a light shining. We all know what light is. And I think a lot of times for Christians too, we think that, well, I'm, I'm not very good with arguments. And I can't convince anybody of anything. Well, that's good because we've not been called to do that. We've been called to just shine the light of Jesus Christ. He is the one that changes the hearts of men. He doesn't need to convince either. He just does it. He changes the hearts of men like that. And he does that through the preaching of the gospel. He does that through the sharing of Jesus Christ. I mean, it would be similar to the moon trying to convince others that the moon's the real deal. It's not. The moon has no light by itself. It's actually a pretty dark and desolate place without the light of the sun. We need to Point others to the one who is the true light, Jesus Christ. We are a people with no hope and no satisfaction without Christ, but with him we have everything that we could ever ask for, that we could ever imagine. With him we have the light of the world. And not only that, brothers and sisters, we are called the light of the world. And we should share this light. Shine your light among those in your neighborhood. Modeling this incarnation of Christ. Being incarnate to your next door neighbor. One you've only ever waved at. Speaking with that parent that you know that's struggling with life. Maybe a new parent or maybe an older parent that's got teenagers now. And that's struggling. Share this light that you've been given. And I think next we model this incarnation by showing the light that we have in Christ. We don't need to look very far in Scripture to find lives that are changed as a result of Christ's work in them. This book, I think, demonstrates that very well. Just look at the twelve disciples. Fishermen, tax collectors, just regular Joes. And they were given this abundant life from Jesus. 
And they were compelled not only to share it with others, but to go to the ends of the earth, literally to the ends of the earth, and it would cost them their lives. When Christ told them that he came to give them abundant life, they really believed it. And they went out and shared it. And they grabbed hold of that promise, and they never let it go. How do we then portray this life that we've been given? Are we showing the world a people who are victorious over bondage of guilt, over shame, who are free to live without fear, without worry, through our lives, these abundant lives that Christ has paid for with his blood, do they say anything? So let the, let the world see this life that you've been given. We are a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. In Christ, we have what the lost world so desperately wants and needs. And that's freedom from fear, from shame, from guilt, from sin. You don't have to wait to see if they'll be interested in it. They are. They're desperate for it. Just listen to their music. Look at the art they produce. Watch the television and see what's out there. It's people searching for hope. They're desperate for it. We have the hope. I think lastly, we model the incarnation with our presence. A lot of times, simply being there is all it takes to show the world that we care about them. And that we care about them more than just a sense of duty, but we actually really do care about them. We really do want to see all things come under the kingdom of God and be reconciled to the Father. All things. So to finish my triathlon story, I sat there and afraid. I was worried about failing in my first race. And then something pretty cool happened. I just needed someone to come and put their hand on my shoulder and and to tell me it was going to be okay. And that's exactly what happened. My wife showed up earlier than I thought she was going to be. And she, she came to cheer me on and just didn't say anything. But she was just going to be up in the, the stands cheering for me and that I would do great. It wasn't like she um, whispered some kind of Magic words are sprinkled like pixie dust on me and allowed me to fly through the pool, which that would have been pretty cool. She didn't give me some sort of rousing pep talk. I didn't become superhuman all of a sudden. I just had confidence. I remembered my training that I'd spent months training for. And it got everything back in line. And I finished the race. That's all that matters, right? It doesn't matter what my time was. So... How do we how do we model that this presence? You know, I think about my triathlon story and the coordinators of the race. I mean, these the court, people who put the race together had no idea that their categories would make me a nervous wreck. All right, everyone on this side of the pool is slow. Everyone with a bike that doesn't look like this probably shouldn't be here. 
Everyone that doesn't have this pair of goggles looks like they don't belong. It's much like the world does. I mean, think about the average person who might come through our doors. The world has told them who they are. The world has told them who they have to be and what they have to do and how they have to do it. Why would we pick up right there where the world has left off and tell people, this is how we're going to do church. And if you don't like it, you can leave. Why would we do that? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't say, I'll come down and I'll come to you as long as you clean your life up. I'll come to you as long as you match exactly what I want you to be and what I want you to do and do it exactly the way I want you to do it. Aren't you glad that even while we were still sinners, he came and died for us? He didn't have a list of us stuff for us to do before he came to us. He came to us anyway. He became, he became man. He lived among us in the fallenness of this world so that he might deliver us. He came because we needed to be saved. Because I needed to be saved. He came and he changed us. So we model Christ's incarnation in our presence, in the lives of those around us. We aren't called to do the work of saving them, thankfully. We're called to be a witness to the one who can. We're not even capable of ultimately changing their lives. We can do things for people that make their lives on this earth a little bit easier. And I think that's good and necessary and right for the church to do. But if we're just doing that without telling them about the one who can ultimately make them new, we're missing the point altogether. So sometimes the very best thing that we can do is just to be there with people. To be amongst them. To be with them. What good will it do if we stand inside our building proclaiming the name of Christ if we aren't going out and meeting those who are desperate, who are dying, who are dead in their trespasses and their sins, and who need a Savior? So I think first, if you're here today, and you're hearing about Jesus in this way for the first time, Maybe you can't possibly believe that someone would come to save you. Or you've sought all these different avenues of your life looking for freedom and satisfaction in your life and they've all turned out to be dead ends. Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, He came to this earth and He became man. He took on all of your sin, your shame and your guilt and your fear and He took the punishment for your sins so that you might have the light of life. And not only that, he rose from the dead so that you could have victory over sin and death. So those things would no longer have power over you. You can have victory over those things. Are you looking for something else to give you that victory? Are you looking for something else to give you freedom? It won't happen. Only Jesus Christ can do that. 
The Bible says that if you confess that Jesus is Lord, that you believe he rose from the dead, you can have that abundant life. So call upon the name of the Lord. Be saved. And so for us as believers, we need to begin praying to God and ask God, how can we model this incarnation in our community? Whether it's our neighborhoods, sports teams, where we work, whatever it is, we have been called to model that, to show people the light of life. We've been called to manifest the love and the truth of Christ to the world. And it's through this incarnation of Jesus Christ that we have been called and given the power to do so. So let's go to him in prayer and ask for his help. Lord Jesus, you came to this earth and you came as a baby. You came humbly to this earth and you lived the life that I should have lived. I'm the one that failed the Lord of all creation. I'm the one that didn't follow his law. I'm the one that deserved death and punishment. But yet you followed perfectly and you took my death and my punishment so that I could have your righteousness. Father, help us. That's true of all of us who are here. Help each one of us to model that, that we might go out into the community, that we might love people as you've called us to do, that we might show them the light of life, we might show them the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that they might call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.